Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for February 11th, 2018. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining us again, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. Yes, and uh, welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Good to have y'all. Uh, back at our normal time, no Super Bowl, so we're here in a, a rainy night all across the southeast. And our guest, I guess he's also going to be experiencing the same thing. Charlie Harper's coming in, a frequent guest of the show. Been a little while since I said Charlie on. And we're going to talk a lot of Georgia policy, um, which I think will impact other states because some of the things we're talking about um, would actually cross state lines, if you will in some fashion, but it's the Georgia legislative session, a lot of policy going on, so we're going to talk that with Charlie, but in just the first few minutes of the show, uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but Tim and I went to go see Bob Ryan, the longtime sports writer for the Boston Herald, also on many uh, ESPN shows. He was at Berry College, and Tim, would you say that that crowd was roughly 50 people that got to hear him? Yeah, I would say about that. It was in a small, I wouldn't call it an auditorium, but a meeting room off of, you know, one of their main auditoriums in a building I had had never been in. Uh, Berry College, I guess the locals know this, invite a lot of uh, great speakers up here, and and, and it it was a lot of fun getting to hear Mr. Ryan. Yeah, definitely for an auditorium, if you call it that, it was intimate. Um, so he comes mm-hmm. up, he says that he's willing to, as long as the college will pay for his travel, he'll come talk. Um, he gives a talk, and then he does some questions. He also, apparently, a big, seeing a basketball game was was a requirement to get him to come, and he speaks to the journal, journalism classes the next day. But he gives an interesting talk, talking about and his, his uh, five pillars of society. I thought those were interesting with – theater, uh, film, music, art, and sports, and how that all fits in, and he goes through all those. And and then he starts answering questions, and I was lucky enough to be chosen to ask a question, and I asked him just about the XFL and the fact that coming back, it seems to be that it's political more than sports. And and that's all I asked, wasn't it, Tim? I never mentioned Donald Trump's name. Right. And, And then where did he immediately go? Well, he immediately almost pivoted to Trump. He 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 mentioned him quickly. He he obviously is not a fan of the president. Uh, the XFL was the thing that got him going, and uh, his his thing is that sports, which we've talked about on here before, as one of the great unifying things in this country one of its unifying institutions is now under attack and has been politicized. And it's this error and this president that has done that. And 
Mr. Ryan was not very, very happy about that at all, was he, David? No, not at all. And I think that's uh, telling that, you know, Donald Trump, even when he's not mentioned, he's pervasive over everything. And right. Typically not in a positive way. Um, and things that are totally unrelated to him, he gets interjected to or somehow interjected into. And, of course, uh, Bob Ryan was saying, you know, the kneeling that we've discussed on the show, it really had started to subside either way you felt about it, but then that just reignited it in such a way because that's, I guess, what really brought yep. um, Donald Trump and sports into being where he talked a lot about it. Well, we're going to put a pin in this thing, and we're going to get completely off of politics for a while and deep into policy, and I'm going to pass it over to Catherine. Catherine? Hey, Charlie. It's great to have you on the show tonight. We're so happy to have yeah. you back. Catherine? How is everyone tonight? Good. It's nice to hear your voice. We haven't I haven't seen you in a while, but I know you're busy and so am I. Um I wanted to we wanted to start out talking about the Amazon headquarters um possibility of coming to Atlanta. You know, it seems like every time there's some, you know, problem in Atlanta, whether the power in the airport goes out or we have some kind of huge traffic snafu, everybody goes, okay, there goes Amazon, we're never going to get it. And then I think there's some discussion about that around some of the policies that are legislation that's being discussed in the legislature this year. And my question is, it's like, is this like uh, be careful what you wish for or let's go for it, let's do whatever we we can to get it? What do you think? Let's take a little step back and try to put it in some perspective and probably start with general news before even make it specific about Amazon. Uh, Nowadays in the era of social media, you've got to get folks' attention if you want to sell them news. And so social media helps drive discussions, and a lot of reporters and other interested folks that want to glab onto something will look for any catchy title and then that becomes the narrative of their story because a certain word can get you clicks. And right now, Amazon is policy and news clickbait. If you're in anything, if you've got an axe to grind, if you can attach it to Amazon, no matter what end of the political spectrum you're on, everyone in the world is trying to sell their policy for, against, whatever, through the prism of Amazon or any other news story. Oh, my God, it's horrible, blah, blah, blah. I equate stories like the one, the the airport power outage and trying to bring Amazon in as one of the very first times I ever um, got to be a guest on a television show. It was because Atlanta had been shut down by the, I believe it was 2011 ice storm for a week. And people were like, oh, my gosh, people never move here again because we have ice and blah, blah, blah. You know, the sun comes out, the snow melts. Uh, Amazon's making a 30-year decision uh, a couple of hours at the airport. While if you were one of those people at the airport, clearly a bad thing. The, you know these kinds of things happen, and that alone is not going to sway someone's decision. So, bringing it back generally of, of do we have a chance at Amazon and, and what's going on and are these things that you know bad things happen? What we probably need to keep in mind is that. Amazon's talking about 50,000 people over 10 years. That's 5,000 people a year. We're currently, if you look at the kind of jobs that we're landing around Midtown Atlanta and up through mostly the Northern Arc, I mean, it's, it's a Metro Atlanta phenomenon. 
but we're growing at roughly 100,000 people per year, and that's being driven by high-tech, the the high-tech, high-wage jobs of the next century. And all of Georgia is not getting to participate in that right now. But Atlanta is already adding two Amazons a year, basically, in terms of the people that are moving here. So, so Amazon's a nice way to kind of tell the story that that's happening with economic development, and that Atlanta is kind of ready for prime time, specifically with tech jobs because of the infrastructure we have, because of the schools we have here, because of the climate we have here, uh, because of the quality of life. But the folks that want to make every little thing about Amazon and oh my gosh. Other folks saying, can we even handle an Amazon as far as moving that many people here? We're already doing it. And so uh, what we really need around the Amazon story right now is just some general perspective and everybody taking a deep breath because the reason we're talking about Amazon and the reason Atlanta is in most people's top five list uh, for anyone that's done objective you know, lists on it of where Amazon's looking um, and number one on many of those lists we're number one, not just to Amazon, but all the other folks that are looking for a new place to put a large number of employees because Georgia's winning. And we're a good place, specifically Metro Atlanta, uh, for folks that employ people like Amazon does. Okay, I'm going to pass it to Tim for the next question. Thanks, Charlie. Uh, good evening, Charlie, and I bet as a Georgia fan, you were very happy on signing day. Would I be right there, sir? <laughs> it, it helped cleanse a little bit of the national championship game finale to us, but uh, as I believe Coach Smart said, it's uh, we're not going anywhere, so uh, might as well just bring a few yeah. more people into the camp and try again. Yeah. Yeah, not with that signing class, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> That's a top five signing class if I've ever seen one, but anyway. Um, one thing we always talk about with Atlanta, of course, is, is you know, traffic and transportation. Uh, first of all, there's talk of a McDonough to Macon trucks-only highway. Uh-huh. It's estimated that this approximately, oh, 40 miles or so of road could cost as much as $1.8 billion. It's hoped that the feds are going to put in much of the money. If that doesn't occur, will the state be able to still handle such an undertaking, and would it be important enough to spend that type of money on it? I have not really tried to figure out the, the general cost, but let's talk about what that is in terms of why it's $1.8 billion to do you know, 40 miles or whatever. Uh, you're mm-hmm. doing both sides of the freeway, two additional lanes, which would pretty much mean rebuilding every bridge along the 40-mile section of existing freeway because you're going to mm-hmm. have to have interchanges that both trucks and cars can exit the freeway. Uh, why it's being done, it goes back to, you know, I talked about why Metro Atlanta's success, but the Macon corridor from I-16 um, to Savannah, uh, Macon is becoming a distribution hub for not just Georgia, but for the Southeast. But what you're having is folks getting their goods off of boats or coming through the Port of Savannah. Port of Savannah came out with some guidance this week saying they're going to double in capacity again, already the largest container port on the East Coast, but they're going to be double in size in 10 years. Well, that cargo's got to go somewhere, and it's, a lot of it's going to Macon, where it's being taken out of the containers, being put in distribution centers, and then sent away by a truck or by rail 
And a lot of that's going to Atlanta because you've got 6 million customers right there plus what would go around Atlanta. And so you're getting an amazing amount of truck traffic on I-75. At the same time, you've got a tremendous amount of car traffic that's here and growing because North Georgia is growing. You've got those passengers, but it's all the snowbirds from Florida and, and New England. So you've got a lot of people on that 75 corridor for different reasons. And it's getting to the point that it is just unbearably congested at all times. And so mm-hmm. the thought is, if you put trucks in a couple lanes and you put cars on the existing lanes, you don't have the biggest problem you have on freeways isn't so much congestion from normal traffic. It's the congestion from an accident and a growing number of trucks combined with cars. When you have a truck car accident, it is takes much longer to clean up than it does uh, just a car on car accident by multiple of like five times. And Mm -hmm. so trying to separate that traffic, if you're driving around I-285, any time of the day now, it's generally four lanes in most places, and three of those lanes are trucks because trucks have to go around. And that is not the plan for 85, but it's a demonstration project, thus the hope for some extra federal funds. There's an AP mm-hmm. story out now that Donald Trump tomorrow is going to bring out part of his infrastructure plan, and it's going to be keyed very much on on matching funds to states where folks that are willing to pay to help themselves are going to get out. Well, Georgia in 2015 passed House Bill 170 that put almost a billion dollars a year into our roads and bridge funding. Uh, We Mm -hmm. also have already paid for most of our section of deepening the port of Savannah. So in terms of do we expect the federal government to put a hand in, I, I would think that's a reasonable expectation. But Georgia also decided three years ago we can't wait for the feds anymore. And that's one of the reasons we increased our own investment. And Trying to figure out how to handle truck traffic is going to be a very important part because for the part of metro, part of Georgia that's not metro Atlanta, truck traffic is economic development. But you've mm-hmm. also got to figure out how to get trucks to and through a metro Atlanta region that is now 6 million people and expected to grow another million people um, mm-hmm. every decade for the next and, you know, foreseeable and, future. And that pretty much segues into my next question, uh, something that you have said and written much about, and that is a metro area that now is over 60% of the state's population. Uh, You have written a lot about traffic problems in the immediate metro area. Is there a road solution that you see that is applicable that the state could employ that would work to relieve the road congestion in the metro area? Well, what the state is focused on right now, the road solution came about with some some of the additional money from House Bill 170 that didn't get mm-hmm. us into maintenance, and that is a system of high-occupancy toll lanes, hot lanes, H-O-T, high-occupancy mm-hmm. tolls. And so you're going to see additional toll lanes along uh, the plan is, I don't know, uh, Georgia 400 corridor, Uh, I-285, at least from 20 to 20 on the northern half of that. So you're going to see additional lanes, but they're going to be high occupancy tolls that can also be used for buses and bus rapid transit. And that gets the segue into what you're going to see talked about a lot more starting this week, which is how do you merge a transit plan into an overlay of our road structure? Uh, Because what happens too often in this argument is, is, and it, it sounds like I think this is the setup to your question of can we will roads get us out of this or do we have to have transit? Well, you're not going to have one without the other. You're going to have a Mm -hmm. holistic 
transportation network where one relies on the other. And the easiest way to facilitate a bus or bus rapid transit network going off the rail spine that we have that may be expanded and possibly additional light rail is to get some sort of dedicated bus pathways and hot lanes will work for that. Some possibly independent BRT uh, lanes that might be on their own, but you're going to see a mix of all of the above because with Mm -hmm. the right of way situation that we have right now, it's going to be very difficult and very expensive to build rail because there's no right of way for it. It's going to be very expensive to build roads. And what you mm-hmm. can do with hot lanes, specifically like we're about to open up on the northern northwest corridor going up I-75, a lot of the hot lanes are going to be built in elevated lanes because that takes a lot less right away to get you a lot more capacity. Hmm. And with that, I'm going to send it over to David. David? All right. Well, I'm going to move off the of traffic because I've just decided driverless cars are just going to make a lot of this moot soon anyway. And jet so um, I want I'm going to move back. on to, to in the 70s. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to move on to uh, airplane fuel and taxes and things like that. Over the weekend, the Clayton County School Superintendent uh, Beasley, he, uh, his, uh, I just know he's Superintendent Beasley, he uh, – kind of came out against the governor's proposal to uh, take taxes off of jet fuel, and in particular, I guess, Delta, and part of that they say is because they feel that it would help recruit Amazon, kind of circling back to Catherine's original topic, and it would hurt the 54,000 students that Clayton County has, fifth largest school district in it, um, in Georgia, and really a district that probably doesn't have the money it used to. It kind of has a lot of inner city problems but it's a suburban district that doesn't have the advantages of a city that move forward um what do you think will come out of this uh protest by one of our school superintendents to the governor's proposal um i I don't think it's going to have a lot of merit and the reason being and now i'm going to first admit i have not looked at that issue in three years But when we did look at it as we were getting ready, uh, as the legislature was getting ready to pass uh, House Bill 170, uh, the Delta jet fuel tax exemption was a topic then. And there was an ongoing discussion with the FAA and anyone else that regulates airports. Basically, there's, there's a federal law, or was at the time, that was being interpreted differently by different parties. But the more the issue was pushed... Uh, a, a temporary directive or um, whatever you call it, rule uh, had been passed down to further defining it to say that if you collected tax on jet fuel at an airport, those funds had to be used at the airport. And based on that directive, the fear at the time was had that tax exemption not been extended that the money that was being taken there and used for other purposes might have to be paid back to the airport or to the federal government, and that included Clayton County's portion of it. Now, to be honest, I, since it didn't, since the tax on jet fuel, I don't think was extended at the time. I haven't looked at it again, and I don't know if they've issued that ruling as a final directive or whatever. But Clayton County might be playing with a little bit of fire because they've had that money in the past. And if that is in fact what, what the federal government has determined uh, the interpretation of their own uh, rules are, 
then you've got a lot of money that might be being diverted over to Clayton County schools that might all of a sudden end up going back to Hartsfield or back to Washington, D.C. Yes, I mean, that would be interesting to look at. I just It was one of the top articles on AJC yesterday, and, and obviously when you look at tax dollars in schools, schools really – they have to have tax dollars to get funded. They're not a business, um, so something uh, they got to think these, about. These stories come up often, and it amazes me that no one ever actually asks or answers that question. And and I mean, it, it's kind of been pretty well known from the folks that have dealt with the policy end of it. So I, I would kind of like to see if there was ever, you know, I, I haven't spent the time researching it because it's not really been anything I've been directly working on. But that would be the first question that needs to be answered before we get into the drama of. Should this happen? Is is there a practical application if it doesn't? Because if that money's got to go to the airport, if it's collected, and clearly we're already building canopies, and you know there's a 20-year construction plan, the airport's cash flowing pretty well. We're talking about new concourses and possibly even a sixth runway, uh, the, the airport doesn't be doesn't seem to be starved for capital that it needs the extra tax on jet fuel to put into even more infrastructure at the airport. That 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 yeah. regulation was mentioned in that article, but uh, but I think there was it was a more it was more than just the fuel that he was that 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 superintendent the fuel tax that that superintendent was um, talking about because I mean it's I don't know very much about it but they did make a point that you know with the airport in Clayton County it is kind of a shocking that they don't get any that. Clayton County gets almost no benefit from. I mean, aside from business, um, but they don't get any benefit. Like they don't have any. There's no property tax. Well, that, that really kind property. of goes back to what is the airport? And you've had some state legislators say it should be considered a state facility, as opposed to it being a windfall for one lucky county. Uh, you know that that can dive on it. And again, I'm not saying Clayton County should or shouldn't get any benefit of it, but there's a whole discussion of who's the airport. And, and where oh, is that yeah. money supposed to go and who is it supposed to benefit? And, you know, Clayton wants it. City of Atlanta wants it. State, you know, several folks at the state believe it should be a state function given the impact of the airport for everything else we're talking about. I mean, it is also going back to Amazon. One of the main reasons yeah. that we score high with Amazon is because you can do a nonstop flight to, I believe, five continents uh, from Hartsfield. And so, uh, um yeah, it's. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not defending it. I'm just. I, they, they did mention that regulation yeah. oh, in the article, then, and um, yeah. It, so but if we're I talking think, about, I think that then, superintendent was talking about a bigger, a bigger problem for Clayton County, not just the fuel tax. Well, but, I mean, Clayton, is, Clayton does need something. I mean, it, it really. Has, I grew up in Fayette County, just uh, across the Flint River uh, from Clayton. And, I mean, it, it's changed a lot in the last, you know, all of Metro Atlanta's changed a lot, but you, it, it's hard-pressed to say that Clayton's changed for the better. And with tearing down the, the housing projects in Atlanta, I mean, we, frankly, it's it's a very open secret that we exported a lot of poverty from the inner city to the southern suburbs with Clayton taking a disproportionate share. Um, but, I'm not sure the airport is supposed to be the sugar daddy to fix that either. I think it's a bigger policy problem that you've got to figure out what's really going on there. And then how do you fix an overall economic environment to get Clayton back to, you know, peer level standing of, of economy that it had 
in the 70s and 80s were, you know, in the 70s, frankly, the Clayton County folks looked down on us AC rednecks that were over there in uh, Fayette. <laughs> well, I, agree with I, I do want to get another question in, but I, 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 we still look down on you. I, I, I born and raised in Clayton County, you know, that hadn't changed. Um, but, but seriously, uh, one thing that, that, that Clayton County did have to suffer, the northern part places like Mountain View and uh, Forest Park, the, the airport noise really did kill a lot of areas, uh, and they had to take the brunt of that since they got a few extra dollars off of the airport. That might be fair uh, because of how it hurt them otherwise. But I want to ask you another thing. Back to the Amazon sort of related. Uh, people say, you know, if Amazon were to come to Atlanta, then other parts of the state, rural, the rural parts of the state, would um, have more brain drain happen to them than already is. And then David Ralston a few weeks ago proposed a bill, and we discussed it, where um, they want to try to get more people to move out from Atlanta or move to rural parts of the state from outside the state, I guess, and they're going to give them a tax credit for living in rural areas. Um, kind of what's your thoughts and what's the status of that bill? I, I don't think you're going to see that bill this session. I think the concept showed that there was a desire to try to help fix the problem. I, I think after the idea was floated, those looking at it decided they didn't quite have the best mechanism to do that uh, with that bill. And so the, just too many un, unintended consequences and possibly paying people uh, to essentially do nothing um, that would already be making that move and just being able to, you know, without necessarily changing the rate of folks moving there, if that makes sense. And so um, I, I think that one is not really to be keyed on. But going back to the first part of your question, uh, I've got a guest op-ed that someone submitted to me for Georgia Paul's second one, and I haven't had a chance to look at it, but they make that same case. Why are we giving that money to Amazon when we should be giving it to rural Georgia? And my answer back is we're not. Uh, we're giving money to Amazon on the same level that the state pretty much at economic development, they don't publish it because it's essentially a trade secret, but Georgia's got a formula. And if you create X number of jobs, you're eligible for X number of ta dollars in tax credits, and it can be given a lot of different ways. But almost all of those dollars are directly attributed to creating a job, and they're available to current Georgia employers as well as new Georgia employers. And so it's not that we're giving something to someone. If there was a company the size of Amazon or a hundredth the size of Amazon and wanted to go somewhere in South Georgia, Georgia's ready and doing that all day. Uh, we had one in Soperton that created 100 jobs that was announced a couple weeks ago. I mean, it's what the Department of Economic Development does. And much like Metro Atlanta, it's not all about Amazon. But for rural Georgia, you've got to have basic infrastructure for people to and companies to want to move to rural Georgia. So I think you are going to see um, broadband initiatives to try to help get – high-quality, high-speed, reliable broadband to South Georgia. You're still seeing the struggle of what's the best way to uh, create health care opportunities in South Georgia because the hospitals are closing and the economic model to operate a rural hospital is broken, and the state's still grappling with the best way to fix that. And so it, it, the economic development question of South Georgia is not why are we giving the money to Amazon uh, and we should be giving the money to South Georgia because most of the tax credit outside of the job creation tax credit, most of the money is just deferring taxes that 
you can't collect if someone's not there. I mean, if you defer 10 years of taxes on a new building, someone's going to build. Well, if they don't build the building, you don't get to collect those taxes. That's not a giveaway. It's just a temporary abatement. But the, the looking at it as an Atlanta versus rural on, on the tax credit thing is really not the way to look at it. And the way I would look at it is exactly the opposite. Atlanta is going to be grappling with a transportation plan that includes transit money from the state. That's pretty much a unique metro Atlanta problem. At the same time, they're going to be looking at money for rural broadband initiatives and possibly some additional health care dollars going to rural Georgia. You finally got a state government realizing that all of Georgia is not equal. And instead of trying to pretend everyone's equal and saying there's not two Georgias, you've got folks simultaneously and in parallel trying to develop um, policy agenda items so that Metro Atlanta can get what it needs and rural Georgia can get it what it needs and we can have the best Georgia that we can be. Yes. Well, Charlotte, we covered a myriad of topics that all seem to be related to one thing and one way or another with economic development. But we thank you for coming on tonight on the Kudzu Vine. Well, Thanks, Charlie. Good talking to you all, and you all have a great rest of the evening. You too. Thank you, sir. Okay. Good night. All right. That was Charlie Charlie Harper. He uh, writes uh, a syndicated column throughout the state, and you can also read him anywhere in the world at georgiapoll.com. You spell out georgiapol.com, uh, and he posts on there frequently, and he's probably into some other things as well, but I uh, hadn't talked policy in a while, hadn't talked Charlie in a while, and that was a nice marriage of those two things, and can't wait to get Charlie on sometime in the future as well. So, um, well, let's go ahead. Uh, we we had a nice, genteel discussion about, you know, making things better. And, and so, Tim, we got to stop all this in a hurry, and we got to get you outraged and probably get back to a little plot politics for the rest of the show. If you're ready, I think Catherine and I are ready to hear it. We sure. Oh, yeah, I'm 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 ready. All right. Uh... Going to go up north with this story. Uh, The 3rd Congressional District in Illinois uh, is a solidly Democratic district located in Cook County, um, Chicago. Dan Lipinski has been the congressman there since 2005. Most of the political people listening to me know who that is. And before that, uh, his father was the district's representative for six terms. It should be solidly blue on election night, and normally there would not even be any stories of interest about the election in that district. Of course, nothing seems to be normal any longer, does it? Uh, So naturally, one of the biggest stories about the congressional elections of 2018 so far is currently about this district. And Lipinski is not the story. His opponent is. It would seem that the Republican Party in Illinois has some egg on its face. There's one candidate and one candidate only uh, who has qualified to seek the GOP nomination for the third district. Uh, To the horror of the Republican Party, they have discovered that it is Arthur Jones. a name well known to him. Uh, Arthur Jones is a nondescript-looking insurance agent, wears a nice fedora, as a matter of fact. 
when when asked to describe his politics, though, here's where we go off the rails. He states that he is a white racialist. He also adds that he has been a member and an officer of the National Socialist White People's Party. Now, for those of you who don't know, that party was formerly known before its name was changed as the American Nazi Party. He believes that white people are more intelligent than other races and therefore should run everything. He denies that the Holocaust ever occurred, that talk of it was just an elaborate Zionist plot and an extortion racket, whatever that's supposed to mean. He believes that Trump uh, appointed too many Jews to positions in the government. I assume he's talking about his own son-in-law. I'm, I'm not sure what else. And, and when asked, by the way, by reporters to name all of the Jews, he goes on to explain that there is a whole other level of Jews who make all the policy that we never see. That's right, folks. Invisible Jews are out there taking our rights away from us. Uh, When pressed on what he would do if elected, he says that he will push to eliminate American Middle East wars because they benefit Israel. He also says another thing he would like to do is to enlist the help of patriotic organizations like the Ku Klux Klan to rid America of sanctuary cities. Now, of course, the Illinois GOP has strongly condemned the candidacy of this man, but I just have to wonder how he came in under the radar and attained this nomination to start with. Why didn't they notice him sooner and move to stop him? It's not like this fellow is unknown to him. He's run six previous times and was always stopped in the primaries. Heck, in 1998, the Republican Party was so afraid of Jones as a candidate that they put up and nominated instead a fellow by the name of Robert Marshall. Now, Marshall believed, among other things, that the problem of drunk driving was grossly overblown by the media. He also started a League of Men Voters, whose sole purpose, as it turned out, was to advocate for fathers in divorce custody battles and had not one thing to do with actual voting. But but even he was considered better than Jones. And and I guess that he was. So i got to ask again, why didn't they do something to stop this guy? Why didn't they just pay to put someone's name on the ballot? Uh, Jones has parlayed all of this into a, something of a celebrity status. Uh, he's appearing on uh, the national news. I, I saw him uh, for a sit-down interview on CNN conducted by Allison Camarota. And she asked Jones point blank, are you a Nazi? And and he said, no, I'm a patriot and a businessman. Uh, I I only tell the truth, and the cursed two-party, Jew-party, queer-party system can't stand it. Um, (laughs) he, he, He never said which party was which, by the way, in that arrangement. 
Um, I know that most everyone will just laugh this guy off. Uh, n- not not me, folks. I-, I-, I no longer do that. We live in an age where most anyone might somehow gain power. I mean, we, 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 we've seen that happen in the last couple of years. Just imagine somehow Arthur Jones gets to Congress. A man who denies history, and he admits that he celebrates Adolf Hitler's birthday on April the 20th every year. He will be on November's ballot as the nominee of the Republican Party for U.S. Representative in the 3rd District of Illinois. And I'm going to close this right here by saying how much more outrageous can things get. I just shudder to think. David? Yeah, I'll tell you, talking about your other guy, uh, not Arthur Jones, I've never heard of a pro-drunk driving candidate. That that may be a first um, and bizarre. But now, seriously, it just seems like more and more that you, you would think that David Duke was, what, 1991. You'd think this stuff would be getting less, not more, but instead it's growing in some ways, and, and it's really and a whole trend for the Republican he's Party. Got the, he's got the party's nomination for the yeah. U.S. Congress. Oh, yes. In Illinois. There's definitely. Not in Mississippi yeah. or Alabama, Illinois. Oh, yes. I, Catherine, uh, you can weigh in on this too. <laughs> it's just, it's just shocking. I mean, I guess my biggest, the biggest question mark for me, and I think you know, Tim made a good point. Like, why, why doesn't the GOP in that district just run somebody, just run yeah. a primary, so that you you you're not you know. Uh, I'm humiliated by this guy, um, but you know whatever they they've decided not to apparently. So uh, it's it's just it's horrifying. Most definitely. Well, um, let, let's go ahead and move on to um, our, kind of in some ways move back two weeks ago. Last time we had the show at our regular time at 7 o'clock, we discussed the U.S. Senate and the outlook. And I think we thoroughly talked about all of the different um, seats that were uh, in play for Democrats to defend Republicans to take back. And there's a list. I mean, there's definitely a list to look at, even with the political trends being like they are. I think it's time to flip it around. Now, that week we had John Rowley, and we talked about Tennessee. We've had two weeks since then. Um, I think everybody agreed that Tennessee wouldn't be on the map if it weren't for uh, the former governor uh, being on the ballot, very popular candidate. But then today we learned that Bob Corker may decide to run for reelection If he runs and we still get Phil Bredesen as the Democratic nominee – is that still a good opportunity, would you say, Tim? 
Nowhere in the neighborhood of being as good an opportunity as it was, of course. I would have to say that we would move this district from uh, toss-up status, where I believe it now is, back to at least leans Republican and and possibly uh, even Strong, stronger than that, uh, Senator Corker would be extremely uh, difficult to beat by anyone in that state right now. Okay. Catherine, what say you? I agree. I think that um, – I mean, I think it could still be a battle, but I think it's much less, uh, m- much less clear that we could win. It, it it would also increase the bank by yeah now million. I I want to say this four hours ago um, one of Corker's senior advisors said that he is standing by his decision not to seek reelection uh, that. If he were to change his mind and get back in the race, McConnell told him Trump would have to be on board with it, and I just don't see how Corker can go there. Do y'all? <laughs> no, um, I think that actually figures in. I personally think if he were to run, and Marsha Blackburn in particular doesn't stand down and continues to run for um, U.S. Senate, I think she could beat Bob Corker in a primary. And in the process, they might push the Republican Party further to the right. And if they do that, that would only help Phil Bredesen's cause. And so, you know, if Bob Corker could somehow be the only candidate and then could be the Republican that stood up to Donald Trump, I agree. (laughs) It would be hard to beat him. But I don't think that would happen in today's Republican primary. Therefore, I still put this in the toss-up range with – and as far as we – Seeing um, results, I think it could become more and more democratic, uh, depending on how GOP primary, if there were one played out, um, and it's still played out because that seems to be the overriding thing in so many states is how far can the Republican Party move to the right? Um, each candidate tries to one up each other, and so I definitely think Tennessee is going to be a state to watch. Um, Let's go ahead and try to efficiently move to, uh, you know, stay, stay in the T's because I think um, that's where a lot of the action is as far as some of the Republican um, seats they have to defend. And in Texas, uh, Ted Cruz is running, and we know Ted Cruz is a very savvy politician. His problem is more dealing with his um, the people he actually serves with. Uh, I think on TV and in big speeches, he doesn't turn off the Republican base. But then when he deals with people on a one-on-one basis, that's where they get turned off. And something really interesting happened. Actually, in some ways, two things materialized. People thought Beto O'Rourke would have um, Democratic opposition in the primary. That hasn't happened. And he has out-fundraised Ted Cruz two separate cycles since he announced uh, Catherine, how do you think this one's going to play out? I don't know. I, I mean, I just think that incumbency is really t- is really tough, even with you know such a jerk. But I think if we're if if we're 
well organized, well funded, then I think we can we can make we can at least give it a really good effort and and maybe maybe prevail. Yes, uh, Tim, your thoughts on the Texas race? I think we got about an eight or ten point race right now, which is a whole whole lot closer than I thought it would be. And I'm not sure if it's because of the principals who are running or because of the simple fact that the demographics in Texas are really starting to change in a fundamental way. We've seen it at at the presidential level as the races get a little bit closer and a little bit closer. And I think... uh, well, it really reminds me of what's going on this in this state in statewide races a little bit. Uh, we see races getting a little closer and a little closer, and I think it's the demographics that's doing it. I think that's what's happening in Texas, and I do not believe Hispanic voters are very fond of Ted Cruz, one of their one of their own out there. Um, I know black voters certainly are not going to be fond of him. Uh, the and white liberals, of course, would do anything to beat him. So there, there's a pretty good coalition of anti-Cruz voters there. And, hey, in a blue wave, and and I still am of the opinion that that very well could happen. Uh, let's just see. I think it's on the radar, don't you? Most definitely. Um, yeah. I think, you know, that Texas, the state, is interesting, uh, but it has such Republican roots. Ted Cruz personality works against him and better o'rourke um he's not having that opposition and the primary helps and obviously he has some net root if you will um two things i do find interesting one hearkening back to our guest last week i looked and i saw he had a story sells buttons his colors better o'rourke are black and white either has white on black or black on white tim what's the last time you've seen a candidate use black and white with no color if you will is their color scheme black and white is a very 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 unusual uh, color combination to go with now i have seen dark blue and white and we saw that right here in our own district used very effectively by none other than uh bob Barr. One of the, I told you one of the most effective big signs I ever saw was uh, coming in from the Lindale area toward Rome. Huge white sign, dark blue letters, bar, Congress. I think it's one of the most effective signs I've ever seen. Very simple uh, and, and two colors. But I, I'm trying to think of a black and white combination. Uh, Jim Williams used them on his buttons when he ran against Barr. But I'm looking across my own button collection here, and I just don't really see that. I do not see yeah, that I, combination. Catherine, do you know of the, the black and white I combination? I can't think of any. I, I'm racking my brain. Yeah. Um, Very odd. Yeah, I, I, I have a Marvin Griffin button that's black and white, and it looks like a planned thing, um, but I'm not sure. And obviously he's, he precedes all of us uh, being from the 50s, 
Um, or I, was he even the forties? He, he's been a long time ago, but I know. I no, 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 no. I know Sam Nunn. He was governor too, before Vandiver. He was governor. He was governor yeah. right before Vandiver, and I clearly remember him running against Carl Sanders in 1962 when he attempted to come. Did he use? So. Did he use black and white? Uh, I don't recall those being popular colors with him. By by the early 60s, everybody wanted to get into the red, white, and blue thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I, and, and okay. I don't... Well, it, it just struck me as unusual. I don't think, once again, I think James Carville said it best. You discuss your colors once, you pick them, and then you stick with them. You don't keep changing right. and thinking about it. You pick it, you're done, and then you get to, um, you know, actually issues. Now, the other thing, he's from El Paso, and if you don't have a Texas map in front of you, that's mm. on the far western tip of the state, not near a lot of the other population centers. It's not a small town, but it's, it's not Dallas, Houston, San Antonio by any means either. Um, the fact that he's so far, he represents the area so far away from the big three population centers, and then Austin sits between those. Um, Catherine, do you think that'll have an effect? Well, of course it will, because it will have an impact on, you know, how, he's, how he can spend, how he spends money. And it also means he doesn't, might not have the name recognition that certainly that Cruz does. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, geography makes a difference. Just like if we had a Governor's can a governor candidate or a senate candidate from Valdosta, you know, how, it, it would be. It's just a, another another barrier. Doesn't not not something that can't be overcome, but it is another another thing to be considered. Another criteria that you have to consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I will say this, you know, Georgia's biggest state east of the Mississippi. Texas is way bigger, um, so you yeah. can you can drive from. Austin, Atlanta, realistically, a time or two a week, um, you'd pretty much have to turn that into flights, and that would have, that would affect your um, your travel budget, and maybe that's why it's good he's raising more money uh, than Ted Cruz to these cycles. Well, let's talk about another one. Let's move a little further west. Uh, Jeff Flake is going to retire in Arizona. There is a laundry list of candidates on both sides. Um, on the Republican side, you have a three-way race between one more moderate candidate, Martha McSally. I think when we talked to um, our friends from Red Racing Horses, Jackson Dar, he was big on that, or I read some things he posted about that. And then you have two other candidates, Joe Arapaio, Sheriff Joe is running, as well as Kelly Ward, who actually at times ran against John McCain, both um, – on the ballot and then in her words, they're all running for the Republican nomination. And then on the Democratic side, you got a good many folks. But um, Kristen Sanama, I'm probably saying that wrong. She's a sitting congresswoman. Uh, she's running as probably the main candidate on the Democratic side. She was considered the, the best get in candidate recruitment for the Democrats. Uh, Tim, how do you see this one playing out? Well, I believe this is one of the very best um, pickup opportunities for the Democrats on election night. Um, uh, 
uh, Kristen Cinema, uh, by the way. Cinema. Uh, okay. We've had a C out of Yeah, Cinema, but I believe it's Cinema. She is a very attractive young lady, very up-and-coming and rising star in Democratic politics. She's about 40 years old, I believe. She's already got – she's into her third term. Um, so, um, I, I believe she will probably win the Democratic nomination. And over on the Republican side, you have a conservative and two, uh, n- nots. <laughs> uh, they are, they are more of the, let's see how far to the right we can get crowd. Uh, we know all about Sheriff Joe and, uh. The Kelly Ward is, is just about as bad as he is. And the, the real hope by all peace-loving people in the world is that those two will split the coup vote and uh, Sally will be the Republican nominee. Uh, we, we certainly want a responsible person as, as the nominee, just in case the Republicans happen to Hold on to that seat. Now, there's one more thing to throw into the mix here. And uh, that is, God forbid, if Senator McCain were to have to resign or something like that. What if we had two Senate races on the ballot? And then one of those characters we just mentioned would be a nominee and possibly both. Um you know, well, could, one of uh, them would certainly jump down. over there to the other race, that's for sure. One of them. And then would. it would be a one-on-one race um, if, you know, because obviously it would make more sense for knowing the Republican primary politics for the two more radical candidates um, to yeah. split instead of both of them running either against each other, that one of them needs to shadow McSally and then one could run unopposed. Now, how do they agree to that? Who knows? I did see, um, Catherine, that uh, Kelly Ward has been endorsed, and, and uh, Rand Paul's doing a rally for her, and so that's kind of more of a libertarian bent. How do you think that'll impact that primary? Oh, that's an interesting. Uh... <laughs> oh God, they're all so crazy. <laughs> I mean, you really want Rand Paul on your stuff right now? <laughs> Recent antics. <laughs> Mr. I wouldn't, but if you're running in the Republican <laughs> primary, you might. Um, well, that's yeah. Uh, yeah, that's Kelly that's Ward trick, and Joe Arpaio. Boy, that's really a good pick, right? Oh God! Please, McSally, win. That's that's all I have to say. You know. Well, I, I, I mean, just guys win, and the guys, general. I I just cannot jump into this stuff. That let's get one of the crazies and it'll be easier to beat them. That hasn't worked too well for not, us I lately. Not, I have no. Oh, it did work that. in Alabama. It certainly didn't work in 2016. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 I think that this year the trend lines are going to be even more important than the candidates, though. I'll say this: like another state we mentioned in our last discussion. Missouri, um, Claire McCaskill's made a, a living out of that, getting to run against the right candidate. 
I think at least not two different times. Well, let's um, let's move over to we had you know we've had a guest on discuss Nevada, but we hadn't talked about that state. Uh, most likely, they have an incumbent um, that will be the nominee, although Danny Tarkanian is running against him. But it, it looks like that um, you would think Dean Heller would be the nominee. And then on the Democratic side, there's a there's one or two or three candidates running, but Jackie Rosen is a congresswoman, so it's pretty good. She's going to be sitting senator versus sitting congresswoman, and I believe she's from the Las Vegas area where the Democratic base is. Um, Catherine, is Nevada another pickup opportunity that's really tangible? I really hope so. I think it's right up there. If we can get everybody out yeah. to vote, that's always a challenge. Yeah. Uh, Tim, your thoughts on Nevada? I think this is the prime pickup opportunity for Democrats in, in all the Senate races. There's only eight Republicans seats up, and this one, I, I think I think we're going to win it. Heller has not only opposed uh, his own party on some things, he's opposed his own very popular governor. Sandoval on some things like Obamacare, for instance. Uh, not only did he oppose Obamacare, but then he goes out and he opposes the Senate version, the Republican Senate version of, of a bill to replace it. Uh, so I don't see where he's going to go for votes. You talk about a state whose demographics are coming around to being right. blue. Uh, yeah, I, we've got good candidates running. Uh, I fully expect to put this one in the blue column on election night. I'd say this one is a blue leaner right now. Yeah, I definitely think it's one. And Dean Heller just really doesn't seem to have a clue on how to vote on a lot of these things uh, right. because he didn't know which way the political winds will blow. He's worried about his primary, and he's worried about his general. Um, and so, interestingly enough, if let's say – whether or not uh, if these two last two seats we talked about do switch, or even in many cases the Arizona one doesn't, there will be more female candidates um, in the Senate just <laughs> on those two states alone. Um, one more state that is kind of the fringe, you know, how big can the wave be, would be um, Nebraska. Deb Fisher, I've heard she's got some problems in her own party. They're not major. There's nothing to do with her personality. It's more – some votes. Is she conservative enough? And um, Jane Raybold, a, a Lincoln City Councilwoman, that's where the University of Nebraska is, is running against her. And um, so that's like one of those if the wave was big enough, if a lot of the really conservative voters became very, very turned off, Deb Fisher could be in some trouble. Uh, Tim, any reality to this one in Nebraska? I don't. That would have to be a massive wave um, to pull that one out, David. I I just don't 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 see it. The Democrats, of course, are targeting the uh, Omaha congressional seat with a very good chance. In a wave, they're going to win that one back. Um, but I, I I I just don't see winning. Uh, when in Nebraska, but I, I do want to mention this. You know, uh, just a little over a year ago, 
Democrats uh, were looking at a rather substantial mountain to climb in these Senate races. 23 uh, Democrats and two independents that caucus with the Democrats are going to have to run. Only eight Republicans, 10 of those Democrats, were going to have to uh, hold seats in which Trump won the state and the Republicans were crowing about winning the filibuster-proof majority. Well, that talk certainly has ceased now, hasn't yes, it, guys? Yes, We are seriously yes, talking definitely. about winning the Senate back. I mean, seriously, we're talking about it. It's a possibility. Oh, definitely. And it is if you start looking at the math uh, like right. we did. Uh, Catherine... A uh, quick thought on Nebraska and some of the worst stock photography I've ever seen uh, on Deb Fisher's site. Um, is she in any trouble? I don't think so. I think, like Tim said, I think that's a long shot. I mean, if we have this uh, a nice big wave, it's possible, but I, I don't think it's likely. It's not nearly as likely as some of these other ones we've discussed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just. To, I was just looking at this. Uh, it, she, on the front, they have a picture they use multiple times. She's telling a fish story, and she's not lying about the size of the fish very well. And then on another picture, she's talking to three people drinking coffee. None of them are making eye contact with her, and I'm almost positive that not a full sentence was said as they were taking this photo. I've really never <laughs> seen anything like it. Um, so check out the stock photography, or the, the not stock, but the photo, photography they took on Deb Fisher's site. We want to thank again Charlie Harper for coming on. And next week, uh, Tom Jensen of Public Policy Polling has agreed to come on. So we've already uh, booked Tom for next week. So listen up for that. Good night, Okay, good night, y'all. Have a good week. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Well, a strong and 